Amen. Well, welcome now to our final sermon in our sermon series on the nature of God. It's during these sermons where we get to explore what does God mean for us in a 21st century context. We get to delve deeply into some fun theology. See, this is why I love my job. Where else can you be hearing about theology on a Sunday morning? (laughs) You could be at home watching some Sunday news show, or you could be at home sleeping in. But this is where the action is. This is where the fun is. So I hope you're happy to be here. Now, for those of you who weren't here for the first two sermons, let me give you a brief recap of what we went over. In the first sermon, I talked about how, I talked about the various problems that arise in the 21st century as we think about a concept of God. Most of our concepts of God, whether we admit it or not, come from popular culture. I mean, think of Morgan Freeman as God speaking down from the heavens. Or come from images we might have received when we were little kids. And these images of God, of course, present certain problems. What do we do about miracles? What do we do about the fact that people claim we can't see evidence for God? What to make of intercessory prayer, those prayers where you ask God to intercede to change things in the world? Or what I mentioned as the biggest problem of all, the problem of evil. If God is all-powerful and all-knowing and all-good, why does evil exist? There have been various solutions proposed to these problems, but many of them are unsatisfactory. I finished the sermon by looking at the evolution of the concept of God. Starting in pre-modern times, God was seen as the cause of events that happened, both good and bad. Starting in the 17th century, you started to have this belief that God, uh, that there was the natural world that functioned based, based on the laws of nature, and that God was somehow out there, intervening from time to time within the laws of nature. Out of that, you had, out of this supernatural, natural divide, you had those who, you know, argued for a watchmaker God, God that created the world and then took a back seat to the laws of nature, or a God that intervened from time to time. The problem with the first view, the watchmaker God, is that God becomes then functionally irrelevant in our lives. The problem with the second view is we're still left with the issues that perplexed us before, in particular, the problem of evil. What do we do? So then last Sunday, I made a proposal about how to address some of these issues. And I did it by looking at the great 19th, 19th century conception of liberal theology. Now again, when I say liberal theology, this is not liberal in a political context. This is in a theological context. Liberal theology. What does that mean? Well, what I argued was, or what I, what I talked about was that before the 19th century, uh, people would talk about God in terms of propositional statements, doctrinal statements, and the like. And then in the 19th century, there was this big shift. A shift from that talk about propositional doctrinal statements to a focus on our subjective experience of the divine and describing that. And then building our theological system from that description of our experience from God. Because, as people in the Enlightenment, most particular Immanuel Kant pointed out, we are hopelessly caught up within our own experiences. 
We cannot get at objective truth because anything that we say about the world is interpreted through our experiences of that world. Therefore, if we're going to analyze God, the only way we can truthfully analyze God is from our own experiences. And those experiences become as empirically valid as any other experiences, particularly when other people have them. Again, in all times and places around the world, people have had a belief in God. So when your belief in God, your experience of the divine resonates with them, you can say, hey, this is a real thing. Liberal theologians uh, talk about this experience in various ways. Some call it the feeling of absolute dependence. Some would talk about a numinous experience, an experience of awe, an experience of the holy. I'm sure you'd probably describe your experiences of God in different ways. The key with liberal theology is it starts with that subjective experience and then creates a system from there. Now, this has a lot of implications for theology, if you're a liberal theologian. Among them, liberal theologians don't believe in hell. There is no God who sits in judgment who then makes decisions based on humans down below. If God is a loving presence, an imminent force that calls us to goodness and love, a concept of hell does not make much sense in the liberal theological framework. Liberal theologians are those who are pluralists. They lift up the fact that even though different traditions might have different ways of talking about God, fundamentally they're talking about the same experience. They're all just different pathways to the same God. Therefore, liberal theologians do not condemn other religions or look negatively on other religions. Liberal theologians uh, also don't like talking about sin. Those old concepts of what's right and what's wrong are not relevant. What's relevant is your subjective experience of the divine that leads you to be more loving and compassionate. Focusing on sin is only a negative thing that drags you down. Liberal theologians instead want you to be called or urged towards God. Similarly with Jesus, liberal theologians don't talk about Jesus' blood as having some sort of magical powers on the cross. In fact, most liberal theologians are quite skeptical of substitutionary atonement. Instead, how are you saved? You're saved by modeling your life on Jesus and being filled with that same God consciousness that Jesus was filled with. Liberal theology. So what do you think of all that? So we're all good. We can just go home, right? Do you see any problems that might arise with a liberal theological framework? Any things that might rub you the wrong way? Well, hold on to that thought for a moment. (laughs) So in the 1960s and 70s, there were increasingly philosophers and scholars who looked in depth at issues of language and culture Most particularly, how language and culture can actually shape our experience of the world around us. So, one example might be, uh, you know, indigenous people in the polar regions, often referred to as Eskimos, uh, apparently have many words to describe snow and ice, which makes sense. Those different words in that culture actually change the way that Eskimos experience snow and ice. When they see it, it fits into different categories than it would for someone else. Ice means something very different to an urban dweller in the Northeast US. 
It is not a good thing. If you are a hunter in the polar regions who depends on ice for your livelihood and well-being, ice means something very different. What about uh, a concept of God? Let's say you grow up in a household where it's a very religious household and God shapes everything that you do within your household. You pray every day. God is seen as that, that controlling, overpowering, all-present force in your life. And let's say you're in conversation with someone who grew up in a starkly atheist household who was told not only that God was useless and nothing, but God was also the source of all the evil and bad in the world. When these two people talk about God, they mean something entirely different and they just end up talking past each other. Their experience is so dramatically shaped by their past lives, by their use of language and their culture, that they actually cease to be able to communicate about the same concepts. The words don't mean the same thing. Now, this, this experience is true also of, of how we talk about God. We don't interpret our experiences of God in a vacuum. We interpret our experiences of God within our own language and culture. So we have an experience of God, and then we are forced to put that in some kind of language, to fit it in some kind of narrative that makes sense to us in our past and our future and the, for the people around us and the way we talk about it. And the way we talk about God actually makes a difference for how we experience God. And here's a good example. Our text for this morning from Exodus 14. This is the foundational story for the Jewish tradition. The parting of the Red Sea. The liberation from Egypt. This is it. Now, we don't know what happened on that day 3,000 years ago in which the Red Sea was parted. We have absolutely no idea. We have no way of knowing what happened on that day. The only thing we have is how, that, is how that experience was interpreted and handed down to us through the ages. So something happened on that day. Something happened such that those who experienced whatever happened testified to it in some kind of way. And it, it, it then became enshrined in Jewish ritual and culture. And then several hundred years later, it was written down in the text that we have for today. And then that text kept being repeated and talked about in the Jewish tradition such that it shaped the way in which Jews would see God. God is a God of deliverance. God is a God who favors the people of Israel. They are the chosen ones, the chosen people. This affects then how they experience God. So when the Israelites were in exile in Babylon, they expected some sort of deliverance. That's, after all, who God was. That's what they were taught who God was. And so when they did experience that deliverance, when Cyrus the Great became king of Persia and defeated the Babylonians and let the Israelites return, that was a second exodus. It made sense. This is how God functions and how God will continue to function. You see? This is sort of fun stuff. (laughs) Post-liberalism, post-liberalism is a framework, a theological framework that argues that doctrine, language, culture, narrative, these different things actually matter and they shape our experience of the divine. You cannot get outside your culture and language. Post-liberals would critique liberals, liberal theological framework, as saying that liberal theological framework is very much a post-enlightenment, post-scientific, post-scientific revolution manifestation from Western culture at a particular time and place. 
The type of ways that liberal theology talks about things would be completely alien to people in other cultures and other times and other places. Simply calling God a feeling of absolute dependence or focusing on a feeling of the numinous does not even begin to describe what happened during the Exodus. You see the issues there? So post-liberalism takes a very different approach to things. And I can see some confused looks on some of your faces, so I'll, I'll elaborate a bit. You can see what I mean. So if, if doctrine matters, if the content of the faith matters for how we experience God, there are some obvious examples you can point to. One of which is, in the Christian tradition, the Christian tradition from the beginning has said that God is good and that creation is good. You see this in Genesis 1, coming up again and again. Creation is good, God is good. Other religious traditions and cultures do not see God in the same way or creation in the same way. For some religious traditions, God is a source of both good and evil. Or, for other religious traditions, creation itself, the created world, is fundamentally bad. We want to elevate ourselves beyond the created world. But not so in Christianity. In Christianity, creation is good. So when you see creation, you see it through a good lens, not a bad lens. Or, for instance, when something bad happens, it can't be from God. It has to be from from something else. Like, say, for instance, the devil. Because God, we know from the tradition, is good. When you experience the divine, it's experienced this framework of God as being fundamentally good. If you were in a different culture with different language, and different, you might experience God in a different way. Let's take another example. I can see some of you are still skeptical. How about the notion of monotheism? A basic Christian doctrine is that God is one. There are not separate gods within our own pantheon, and there are not separate gods for different nations and tribes. What that means is all people in the world are all children of the same God. That doctrine has tremendous impact for how you see other people and their beliefs and how they function. As a result of it, God transcends nation, race, and clan. Nation, even though people like to put the United States on a pedestal, if you're a good monotheist, the United States is just one nation alongside others. God must transcend that. All people, regardless of what they look like or or how they act, all people are children of God. If you are a monotheist, that has huge implications for how you approach the world in your life. If you are not a monotheist, that's very different. Let's take another example. Christianity believes that God created the world, but God is not the world. There are those who are pantheists. A pantheist believes that God is in the natural world. Christians don't believe that. Christians believe that God created the world, but God is not in the world. Now, there are other traditions like ancient Celtic cultures or certain indigenous cultures in the Americas and other places that are pantheists, that do see God in the natural world. Imagine the implications that has for how you treat the environment. If a tree is God, when you cut down that tree, that has big implications. But if you don't believe that the tree is God, merely a creation of God, as you are, that affects the way you relate to the world around you. Having fun yet? What about Jesus? What about Jesus? Christians claim doctrinally, that Jesus is the son of God, however you interpret that. Different Christians interpret that in different ways. But Jesus is someone 
who voluntarily dies at age 33 on the cross, or roughly 33 on the cross. In Christian tradition, in the Christian tradition, self-sacrifice is lifted up as a great virtue. And that Christians are taught that you find God through self-sacrifice. Other traditions see things differently. Now, post-liberalism doesn't say that other traditions are necessarily wrong. The way post-liberalism talks about things is in the, is in the concept of maps. That's a, it's an analogy that's often used. It's an analogy of maps. Each cultural linguistic world that we inhabit has its own map. Again, this is an analogy, a figurative map. Now, just because your map might be different from someone else's, it doesn't mean your map is correct and theirs is wrong. They're two different maps. Your goal within your own cultural linguistic environment is to try and understand your map as well as you can. Because the better you understand it, the more it shapes and enlivens your experience of your own world. So for a post-liberal, you do want to study the Christian tradition. You want to immerse yourself in scripture. You want to know the Christian rituals and the way Christians do things. Because the more you go into that tradition and learn about it, the more it shapes your experience of the world and of God. And you can learn from other maps, and that can help you refine your own. But we each have our own cultural linguistic map. Now, I'm still, I can still probably imagine that some of you uh, might be thinking, well, this is all well and good, John, and, and I'm glad you like this kind of theology. <laughs> But what relevance does this have for me in my life today at FCC? A logical question to ask. It's where things get fun. So let's say, hypothetically speaking, that you are a liberal Christian. A liberal theological Christian. The focus, therefore, is on the experience of the divine. Finding that God consciousness, being in touch with that God consciousness, being transformed by that God consciousness. That's the goal if you're a theological liberal, at least in the way that I'm framing it. If that's the goal, let's say you come to Sunday, let's say you come to church on Sunday morning and you don't experience the divine. If you're a theological liberal, then this is a waste of time. Go find something that does. Maybe a walk in the park helps you experience the divine. And so that's where you should be rather than in church. If you're a theological liberal and everything is about the experience of the divine, let's say you're serving others and you're like, you know what? I don't really like going to soup kitchens. It's not my thing. I don't experience God there. I don't need to go. Because I'm not being spiritually transformed by it. Some people might really like meditation. For meditation, that's where they find an experience of the divine. Others might be like, meditation, not a chance. Total waste of time. Others would be like, I find God. I find that spiritual experience in singing. Or in community. Taken to its farthest extreme, theological liberalism becomes the ultimate supermarket of religion. It can become very me-focused. Where you pick and choose the parts of the religious experience or the religious world that give you that divine experience. And everything else, frankly, is not that important because it's all about your own personal spiritual transformation. Post-liberalism takes things in a different framework. For post-liberalism, you, again, want to immerse yourself in the tradition. So when you come to church, it doesn't matter if that particular Sunday you don't feel the presence of God. That doesn't, that, that doesn't matter. What matters is that you're here for the rituals. 
You're here in this space with these other people. You're still worshiping God. You're walking through it because when you actually do that and you are shaped by it Sunday after Sunday, it actually changes who you are and how you experience the world around you. It gives you a narrative, for instance, a Christian narrative that is a counter-narrative to the consumerist culture outside. You begin to see things differently because you gather here every Sunday. That becomes important. If you're a post-liberal... That means you want to follow in the footsteps of Jesus because you're called to do it. Not because it might be fun or because it's a good spiritual experience, but because that's what God calls you to do and that's how you are shaped as an individual. So you go out and you do serve others, regardless of whether you feel like it that day or it gives you a particular spiritual experience. You do it because over time it shapes who you are into a person of service. And that actually does affect your experience of God. Same thing with justice work. Justice work is incredibly exhausting and it's frustrating and it wears you down. And if you know anyone who goes into justice work, you know it's like, gosh, you, you need some real fortitude to go stick with that. But this is what God calls us to do. And you do it time after time. And in the midst of it, in the midst of those struggles, in the midst of the disappointments, and in the midst of the oftentimes failures, you can still find there somewhere God. The experience of God might surprise you. The form it takes, the type of grace might surprise you. But a post-liberal says, no, 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 this is what we do. That's why we study Christian education, to learn about more stuff, to learn about our faith, to deepen it, to try new spiritual practices, to mold ourselves into people of God. Now, I'm not necessarily trying to make an argument for one or the other. Necessarily. (laughs) But I am trying to invite discussion, because we are a congregational church, And we are a people that likes to discuss things. And so I'm proposing this for us as something to actually think about deeply. What do you say about the experience of God? How do you experience God? Do you think that this post-liberal perspective makes sense that I've been laying out today? Do you prefer a liberal perspective and why? We proclaim boldly at this church that... uh, (laughs) This is a place where faith is a journey and thinking is required. Well, people, this is where I'm putting this challenge to you right now. (laughs) And the good news is, after church, we'll have this wonderful celebration of the hymnal, and we'll be able to buy copies of the hymnal, which I hope you all do. If you don't already have one or several, uh, you can have some cake and celebrate these great things. And afterwards, there'll be coffee with the minister in room four. Well, you can come and talk to me about this stuff and see what you think. Because maybe, just maybe... There is yet more light and truth to break forth from God's holy word.